You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and David's pick on America's Web Radio. We've got a very special guest today and uh, we'll, even though one uh, person doesn't like the fact that I tell family stories, but I will in this case because it's sort of interesting, never happened before. So we're going to go into that. We started out with a Jody and uh, we have Colonel Ron Maston on and uh, Colonel retired and uh, Ron we do something we started this uh, uh, about a month and a half ago because a friend of mine that's a vet uh, was going into surgery um, because of his uh, service in uh, in um, Vietnam and uh, being sprayed by Agent Orange and uh, we just uh, take a few seconds for everyone that's listening to um, just remember all of our veterans that have served and served our country so well to keep us free. So we'll just have one moment of silence and then I'll be right back to you and welcome you to America's Web Radio. And thank you. So with that, uh, Ron, uh, I wanted to get into the first thing. I've, this has never happened, and uh, I, I've had the station going now for uh, 15 years, and this has never happened that uh, we have a vet that trained in my hometown of Lubbock at Reese Air Force Base, which is now it had been uh, it's been converted into a general aviation base with uh, shopping and all of this other kind of stuff out there. And uh, that's one part of it. And then the other thing is that my son that's in the Air Force, that's a major in the Air Force, is serving now at Shaw, and so did you. So I, I, we've got two things in common. Welcome to America's Web Radio, Ron. Thanks, David. Good morning. Good morning to you. And I hope uh, wherever you are, it's a pleasant day and uh, fall is right around the corner. But uh, that's the way it is. Uh, Tell me, you know, I want to go into your service, and then uh, part of the reason that uh, we're you're on, and we talked briefly about it, was that, uh, and I and I got to see you in, in November or what was it, uh, September the nineteenth, I guess it was, that uh, you were at a um, meeting of POWs and MIAs that uh, uh, you spoke. Uh, and this was with uh, in accordance with our, our part of uh, John's Creek. Uh, and I want to tip my hat to two people. Uh, Mike Mazel, that uh, is the president of John's Creek Vietnam Veterans Association. And then also uh, Rick White, who is the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Institute. Both guys are just absolutely 
fantastic gentleman. And uh, I remember you talking about your experience in the uh, not-so-loved Hanoi Hilton. So with that, just tell us a little bit about your background, but I've already busted the bubble about where you took your first bit of training, Reese Air Force Base. So go on from there. Well, uh, let me start a little bit before that. I, I am a very proud Kansan. I grew up in a little town in north-central Kansas and uh, went to the University of Kansas. So uh, during football season, I don't talk too much about college sports, except I am kind of a Kansas State fan during football season. But when basketball season rolls around, I'm a big Jayhawk fan. So uh, we'll get that out of the right way right now. I uh, <laughs> I'm a loyal Kansan, even though I've lived down here in Georgia for 40 years. Well, well, uh, another thing we have in common, uh, uh, Kansas uh, is in the in the Big 12, and so is Texas Tech, my alma mater. Yes, they are. That's, <laughs> in fact, last basketball season, that was uh, Texas Tech had a good team in the last two years, and uh, the last game they played down there, I, I, KU had to win it, and they did. So I was looking forward to this season coming up. Uh, Looks like Baylor's going to be the team to beat in the Big 12 this year, but uh, you, you just never know, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, uh, again, I took welcome. ROTC, uh, Air Force ROTC at the University of Kansas and uh, went into the Air Force in, in November of 1963. In fact, uh, you and I were talking before. I uh, arrived at Reese Air Force Base on a, a Monday uh, before the Friday where President Kennedy was uh, assassinated. Uh, we spent a my wife and I spent about a year there in uh, in Lubbock uh, at Reese Air Force Base, and there from from there I uh, got uh, an assignment as a backseat pilot in an RF4C, which is a photo reconnaissance Phantom, and uh, <clears throat> went to a Shaw Air Force Base for uh, training in the uh, RF4C. Uh, then we went to uh, Alconbury, England. Uh, I spent uh, a little over a year and a half in Alconbury, England, flying RF4Cs, and. Um, my son, uh, Michael Marvin Maston, was born uh, while we were at Alconbury, England. Came back uh, to the States in October of 66 uh, and proceeded to uh, go on over to Udorn Air Force Base in uh, Thailand. Uh, <laughs> talk about some odd things happening. This, uh, I've got to bring this up. When, I got <clears throat> when we launched our airplanes out of Mountain Home, Idaho, to fly to Udorn, Thailand, the uh, crew chief that launched me, was uh, a kid two years younger than I was from Beloit, Kansas. And, and again, Beloit, Kansas is a town of about four or 5,000 people, so uh, you knew just about everybody in town. Got to uh, Udorn and, uh, in Thailand, and the, the, one of the first things we did was go to a jungle survival school in, at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Well, flew to Clark, and uh, the first day we were there, before we actually went out into the jungle, I was at the officer's club, and I saw this guy dive off the diving board and i says man i recognize that guy and sure enough when he popped up it was a fraternity of brother of mine from the university of kansas who was an air force flight surgeon went out into the field and uh one of the first classes we had they were feeding a live chicken to a big boa constrictor and the airman who was feeding the boa constrictor this chicken was from beloit kansas who again was a couple years behind me in high school so then from there, I went out into the jungle for a couple of days and came back, and um, we were checking out to fly back to Udorn. And I walked down into the lobby of the hotel, and lo and behold, there was a Navy Lieutenant J.G. standing there from Beloit, Kansas. Hmm. So in a matter of about 
two weeks, I had seen four people that I knew from Bloy, Kansas, halfway around the world. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I, and uh, you just never know, do you? Boy, you don't. It's it's a small world. You, it, it certainly is. But I, we uh, we flew our photo reconnaissance mission of Udorn uh, uh, into North Vietnam. Uh, I was actually shot down on my thirty fourth mission. And it was, uh, the target was a dinky little bridge north of Hanoi. We were flying along on a Sunday afternoon. In fact, the day that we were flying our mission was the day of the first Super Bowl, Super Bowl One. Hmm. And, uh, of course, being from Kansas and the Chiefs were playing in it, uh, it took me a couple of years before I found out who won the game. But, uh, anyway. That's we, amazing. Uh, uh, we would fly half day and half night. Uh, and this particular time that we were in the daytime, and it was a nice, beautiful day. We were flying along north of Hanoi, uh, about a thousand feet above the ground, flying probably around 500 miles an hour. When we felt a thump, thump in our airplane, uh, we began losing f- fuel, losing hydraulic pressure. We started getting smoke in the cockpit, and before long, we lost control of the airplane and, and had to uh, punch out. So. Uh, that was late in the afternoon. I was uh, I saw a little village right below me. Uh, I could see the people congregating, and they were beating gongs. And it looks like everyone was coming. I was on kind of on the side of a hill. They were coming up to get me, but it got dark before they around, uh, came up to me. So the next morning, early, I was surrounded by Vietnamese peasants and uh, captured and taken back down into the village where I spent the rest of the day. Uh, some militia showed up uh, later in the day, and I was put in a jeep and made my trek to uh, Hanoi and uh, my first introduction of uh, the Hanoi Hilton, which is a, a French prison camp named Wallo that uh, the French had built to house Vietnamese prisoners. Uh, but now it, uh, we named it, well, I didn't name it. It was already named by the time I got there, but it was uh, the Hanoi Hilton. So that's how I got there. Well, uh, was it ground fire or a missile that got... We, it was definitely was not a missile. It was ground fire of some sort, and I think it was probably a pretty small caliber, maybe no more than a 57 millimeter. It could even been a, you know, a stray rifle bullet. I don't know, but uh, it, it it hit us in a critical pos- uh, part of the airplane, and we lost uh, control. So wow, that was it. And uh, your front seat, what happened with him? He got out. Uh, he punched out probably a few seconds after I did, uh, which at the speed of the airplane, though, he was out of view uh, of where I was. And uh, I was captured the next morning. It, uh, he was far enough away from the village that they finally tracked him down with dogs almost a week later. Uh, he had hurt his back in the ejection and consequently uh, hadn't, wasn't able to move a whole lot. So he hadn't, hadn't uh, gone too far from where he was actually shot down. They tracked him down. I did not see him. <clears throat> Excuse me. I talked to him uh, uh, once we were in our cells. I, one day I was able to talk to him under my door. He was a, in a cell across the, the corridor there. Uh, but then it was uh, like a couple of years later before I actually got to talk to him again. And then finally in 1970 I was able to uh, move into a cell where he was also in there, so got a chance to see him. He's, uh, he's still alive. He. Uh, uh, he, I think he just turned 89 years old. He lives out in Tucson. Um, um, he lost his wife here about a year ago, but uh, he's, he's in good health, so I talk to him occasionally. Oh, uh, that's 
these stories are just absolutely incredible and people that you know i i can't imagine what uh, what you went through and uh you know i i learned something uh every every time i talk with uh with uh a vet and a uh, pow and you know i learned something last night as we were talking and uh you know the you were you were in the Hanoi Hilton, but then they transferred you to another uh, prison, and then uh, back to the Hanoi Hilton. Correct? Yeah, they uh, they moved us around quite a bit, and we never could figure out if there was a rhyme or reason for it, or just uh, they just wanted to move people. But yeah, I was originally in the in the Hilton. <clears throat> we had uh, different parts of the Hilton. The Hilton is a whole block complex, and it's made up of uh, different uh, small uh prisons within that block city block so we had a name for all of them uh one of the first things that we always did when we moved to a new camp was to try to come up with a name and and when i say that all our all our conversation was covert we were not allowed to talk to anyone outside of your own cell consequently uh, uh if you moved into a new camp and the new camp might have uh Oh, four or five different buildings, and within four or five different buildings, there are four or five different cell blocks, and so all the communications had to be done covertly. But somehow we managed to uh, get everybody on board and come up with a name for our camp. So, like I say, the the Hilton was already named by the time I got there, and and within the Hilton, uh, some of the different prisons within the Hilton were named like uh, the Desert Inn, uh, the Nug, the the mint uh, the golden nugget uh, uh, <laughs> they were all named from casinos from las vegas because most a lot of the early shoot downs were 105 pilots that had been at nellis air force base in las vegas and consequently they were the first ones to get to name these things and so uh, these these prison cells all had names from the, the strip out in las vegas well now how long did it and was it active when you were there the tap code uh Tap code was already active when I was there, yes. A uh, guy by the name of Smitty Harris, who was an Air Force 105 pilot, when he had been at uh, survival school years before, uh, they had had an instructor that had talked about uh, uh, a tap code that had been used. I can't remember exactly by whom, but uh, miners sometimes used it, and I think other prisoners years ago had used it. Uh, to communicate, and what the tap code was, if you're unfamiliar with it, you took the the uh, alphabet and threw out the letter K, so you end up with 25 letters, and then you make a, a, a five by five matrix out of those 25 letters. Across the top row is A B C D E, next to it F G H I J, and then there's no K, so L M N O P Q R S T U V W X Y Z. And we would spell out every word, either by tapping on the wall or, or uh, making a noise. Uh, or if they could see you, you could just make a movement or something. But uh, you would first like, take the, tell them which line you wanted, and then pause, and then which column you wanted on that line. So if you wanted to say hi, which was uh, uh, the second line, the second letter is an H, it would be tap-tap, tap-tap, and, and then the I would be tap-tap, tap-tap-tap. So you just spelled out high. So that's how we communicated. Uh, and, yeah, we uh, we named all the camps after that. So I, I left uh, the the uh, Hilton 
and went to the zoo, another place called the zoo, which was uh, used to be an old uh, uh, movie studio that the the French had years ago. I spent some time there, and then the, the big move came for me came in May of 1968 when they 55 of us left uh, the uh, Hanoi Hilton and moved to Sante, which was a town out west of uh, Hanoi, and that camp we named Camp Hope. So we stayed there for a little over two years uh, until July of 70, and then we moved not too far down the road from where uh, Camp Hope was to another camp that we named Faith, Camp Faith. Well, we were there from July until November of 70, at which time the, the U.S. Special Forces raided the Sante camp, Camp Hope, the one that we had left. Uh, it happened at nighttime. We heard the, the uh, jets fly over. We heard missiles being fired. We heard uh, anti-aircraft guns going. Uh, we didn't know what happened, but uh, the next morning, the Vietnamese came around and told us to roll up our all of our gear, which we had. A, everybody had a, a, a rattan mat that they slept on, and then we had a, a few personal items like a blanket and uh, uh, some some clothes and stuff, and you rolled everything up in your mat. We got on trucks, and we went back to the Hanoi Hilton. Um, once we got to Hilton, we went to another place within the Hilton called Camp Unity uh, because now there were about five five or six big, big rooms where all 55 of us from Camp Faith were put in one room. Well, that was, that was like a, a kid coming downstairs and looking at the Christmas presents under a <laughs> Christmas tree on Christmas morning because here you walk into a room and there are 54 other guys there where you may have not seen more than one or two people in, your, in the whole time you'd been there. Uh, so it was, it was really a, a great time and probably the best time we had. Uh, the, the, there was not enough time in the day to do the things that we wanted to do when we got in those big rooms. We, uh, we, ex- we were able to exercise somewhat. Uh, we, it was, the room was like uh, uh, 60 by 80, and you either had a big platform built in the middle with a track around the outside of it, or you had uh, a slab on the sides with a big open space in the middle, depending on which room you were in. Uh, what so about we, facilities? We, we could run around the edges. Uh, we would uh, do calisthenics uh, if you were able to, physically able to. And then we, we had, of course, we had two meals a day. Uh, we had, this is the first time we actually had what you might call a, a bathroom facility, too. Up until that time, all we had were three-gallon buckets for human waste, which you would uh, use, and then the next day you'd, they'd take you out, you could empty your bucket. But now we actually had what we call two-trackers, which uh, uh, a lot of people have seen throughout the world, that just footprints where you squat down and uh, there's a big hole behind you, and we had, uh, we had two of those besides our buckets. So that was quite an upgrade. <laughs> but then we had... Uh, during the day, we would we had classes. We would teach classes. If you if you knew anything about anything, you would you probably either give a lecture or, or uh, teach a class about it. Uh, no one could dispute uh, some of your facts because there was no way they could check on it. We had uh, <laughs> no books, no computer, no nothing. It was just a general knowledge that that you yourself knew. I actually gave a one hour uh, lecture one night on Beloit, Kansas. And uh, I did. I had a, a uh, uh, I had a what you might call a uh, um, 
Now I can't remember what I was going to say. Uh, anyway, it was the audience was they were they were there. They couldn't one of the place they could go. So it was an interesting talk, at least by <laughs> my my standards. <laughs> but we taught uh, we had classes and, and we taught languages. We had uh, uh, oh, we had a uh, uh, one guy that was very mu- musically inclined that uh, he put on a musical program one time uh, where he would have maybe 10 or 12 people, and he would assign a note for each person, and he could point to them, and they could give them that note, and we could actually make a, a, a musical sound. Uh, we, we, uh, I took Spanish. I had a, My Spanish instructor was a, a Naval Academy graduate who had majored in Spanish, uh, and we got to where one day a week we would sit around for two hours, a group of about 12 of us, and speak Spanish. If we didn't know the Spanish word, we would make one up. Uh, we would take the take the English word or the French word and give it kind of a Spanish-sounding um, sound to it, and then we would use that. And we we could d- converse with each other um, using those words. When I got back to the states and tried to find use some of those words, I found out that they uh, they weren't even close to what the Spanish was. But <laughs> anyway, we were, we had a good time. You know, I, I guess uh, you you really. Uh, draw for uh, straws and when i say straws you you'll take anything to keep your mind occupied and uh, try to forget the circumstance uh the food what uh what were you you said two meals a day yeah we had two meals a day and uh for the most part now it it varied from uh, 65 when uh uh, well, 64 when Everett Alvarez was shot down, but 65 were the first time that they started having uh, uh, more than just one prisoner over there. The food wasn't pretty, wasn't very well. Everett Alvarez uh, had some fairly good food to start with because they didn't know what to do with him or didn't know if there were going to be more or what to feed him. But then after that, um, the food was pretty sparse. Uh, uh, that was 65. I was shot down in January of 67, and. Um, during the, the almost two years there, they, the guys had some pretty meagle meal, meals where they didn't get much and they were hungry all the time. By the time I got shot down, we, we didn't get enough food to keep us from being hungry, but uh, it was food that if you, if you were able to eat it all and you ate it all, uh, for the majority of people, if you were in good health, you could uh, pretty much uh, maintain your health. We would have uh, either, both times, we would have either... A, uh, a big bowl of rice or a small loaf of French bread. Then we would have uh, and a, a main, the main meal was either like uh, oh some sort of soup. It was either uh, like oh you might have uh, uh, well the worst one was what we called sewer green soup because it looked like they'd gone out and just pulled a bunch of weeds and put it in the water and boiled it and and um, made a soup out of it but uh we had pumpkin soup uh, every once in a while you not very often but you might have a potato soup uh, very very little meat ever showed up in it and then you'd usually have well the soup was usually made out of the vegetable of the season and however long the season lasted that's how that's how long you ate that particular soup and then you'd have a side dish that was usually made out of the same stuff that the soup was made from so uh, the, a, a, re, a real treat was if you would um, get a soup and find a piece of uh, uh, pork fat floating in your soup. 
Now, I, I was never a fat eater at all. I would always cut the fat off of a pork chop and everything. I just didn't like fat. But if you found a piece of uh, pork fat in your soup, it might be uh, pretty small, maybe an a inch long or something like that, but it probably still had the, the hide on it. It might even have some hair sticking out of it. Mm. But down at the bottom was a nice little piece of fat. Man, that was that was like a piece of finding a piece of Godiva chocolate or something. It was uh, <laughs> absolutely delicious. So that was the food we ate. We ate that twice a day. In uh, the fall of 1969, after uh, Ho Chi Minh died, the uh, food did pick up a little bit. That got a little bit better. And therefore, there was a time where we would have uh, uh, a little bit more meat. Uh, we might uh, have uh, the two things I craved that I never could get over there were milk and peanut butter. And uh, in 1969, there was a period, a short period of time there where they gave us some condensed milk uh, that we could put into our cup and mix with water uh, twice a day at our meal. And they also had fried peanuts with a little green onions or something cooked in there. So after that, I, my craving was over, but I, I still wanted to some, drink some milk and eat some peanut butter. But uh, <laughs> And that was basically our meals, uh, twice a day and usually rice or bread and, and a soup. And a side dish. Were you able to get any uh, care packages at all? No. Um, we got, in the Christmas of 1969, I'd been there almost three years, was the first time that I got a package from home. Uh, the packages were, uh, by the time we got them, I not, don't know how big they were by the, when they were mailed originally by our families, but by the time we got them, it might just consist of maybe one or two articles. Um, we never got any Red Cross packages or anything like that. It all came from family. And the whole time I was over there, a little over six years, I think I got maybe five or six packages. Um, the the best things you could get in a package was actually a photograph of your family, which uh, occasionally I did. Uh, but that 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 was it as far as uh, packages from home. Wow. And how long did it take uh, your family to find out where you were and how to well, send uh, the package. Like I say, I was shot down in January of 67, and my family uh, didn't know I was dead or alive until uh, like uh, September of 1969. So it was uh, coming up on three years before they knew I was dead or alive. And the, the way they found out that I was alive was uh, there was a seaman apprentice, uh, Doug Hegdahl, who had fallen off of a ship out in the Gulf of Tonkin. Uh, he'd gone up uh, on top ship side, top side, whatever you call it, on a ship, and the ship had made a sudden turn, and he'd fallen over. Uh, and, they, and they didn't know it immediately, so he tread water, I think, for something. He was in the water for about five hours before some Vietnamese fishermen picked him up and took him uh, uh, to Hanoi. When they got him, uh, and Doug, Doug was a farm boy from South Dakota, and uh, Doug, intentionally or unintentionally, he, the Vietnamese didn't think he was too smart just by the way he talked. So they kind of made a, a trustee out of him that uh, since he didn't, uh, he, they heard his story and they knew he wasn't flying airplanes or doing anything like that. Uh, so they allowed him to once in a while go around the camp and clean up a little bit. Well, in doing so, he was able to communicate with the other prisoners. He was able to accumulate uh, a list of uh, uh, close to 300 names of people who were POWs at that time. And then the, the Vietnamese were wanting to release some people early. Well, 
According to the Code of Conduct, you do not accept early release. You go home in uh, order of shoot-down. The guys that have been there the longest are the ones that go home first. And so when they offered early release to Doug, Doug told him no, he wasn't going to because it wasn't his turn. Well, finally the senior ranking officers among the POWs gave Doug an order and told him, Doug, you need to go home. Uh, you shouldn't be here in the first place, and besides that, you, you've got a lot of information that you could give uh, our government. So and he, he finally... He didn't want to, but he finally accepted early release and came home, and that's and he had my name on his list. So that's how my family finally found out that I was alive, is because he brought my name home and said, yes, he is a POW. Wow. And, uh, you know, with your training, what had... Was, the anticip- antis- was there any way to anticipate what... What was ahead of you when you were taken to the Hilton the first time? uh, When I got out of pilot training and had orders to go to uh, Alkenbury, England, uh, I had orders to go to survival school at Stead Air Force Base. Well, Alkenbury came back and said, and they were the first ones to get the F-4 in in all of the USAFE Air Force in Europe. And so... I was due to be arrived there just about the same time that the very first airplanes were to arrive, and I was the, one of the first classes. I was the first class at Shaw Air Force Base that was going to Alkenbury. Alkenbury says we don't have time to send him to survival school, so skip survival school. Bring him. He's got to come over here. So I did. I went right from Reese to Shaw to Alkenbury without going to Stead for survival school. Well, after a year and a half there, I got orders to go to Udorn, Thailand, Southeast Asia. And again, I had orders to go to survival school. And the same thing happened. Nope, don't have time to send him to survival school. So I went directly to Udorn, Thailand without going to survival school. So the only survival school I had been to was that jungle survival at Clark Air Force Base. And basically all that taught you what to do is to how to survive if you get shot down in the jungle. So no, I had... There was no way I could anticipate what what was wide ahead of me when I got shot down. So uh, the other guy said that survival school was exactly what they saw when they walked into that first room at that Wallow. It was a, a solitary room, a concrete floor, a little stool sitting on the floor, um, a desk at the one at the head of the room with a there was a solitary light bulb hanging from the ceiling. The desk had a blue tablecloth on it and a chair behind it. The Vietnamese interrogator would come in and sit down in his chair and, and stare down at you sitting on your little stool out in the middle of the room, and and they said that so survival school showed that, that to them, but uh, unfortunately I hadn't had a chance to see that, so <laughs> I wasn't too surprised. Let me, uh, you know, and, and uh, the thing that we all went to, or uh, the uh, Johns Creek uh, service that they did for... MI or POWs. Uh, a lot of the POWs talked about being um, in solitary. Did you ever serve time in solitary? And if so, uh, what did you do to keep your head well, straight? Yeah, I think everybody uh, uh, was in solitary for some time. I was in solitary for about uh, six weeks before I ever had a. a, a cellmate and then i was in solitary again after that uh for 
several months before I again had some cellmates. Uh, it it kind of depended on a couple things. Uh, how many shoot da- shoot downs there were at the same time you were captured, whether or not they had room to put people in solitaire. Uh, I think this is my own my own opinion. Uh, junior ranking officers sometimes got uh, cellmates faster than senior ranking officers. Uh, senior ranking officers they tried to keep the pressure on and get something out of them. Uh, so, if when you're in solitaire, you uh, and again, I, I think I, I brought this up at Johns Creek. Uh, of course, everybody listening wasn't there, but uh, three, three of the first things that, that came to mind in retrospect when I found myself uh, facing the interrogator for the very first time was uh, I, I so much communications. I so much wanted to talk to somebody to find out what to expect, uh, what was expected out of me, and, and how I should handle it. Uh, another thing was uh, setting some goals. I had to, you know set a goal for tomorrow i couldn't live in the 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 day that right then when they were probably tying me up in ropes or something like that i had to set a goal to for tomorrow and the next day and then probably one of the most important things was the strength of your own character um, on how you had been raised uh, the people that had been around you as you're growing up uh, what kind of uh, what what they had instilled in you to allow you to uh, put up with uh, the pressures of that, that you were presently undergoing so those things are always in your mind when you're in solitary, and it's the memories. You think a lot about things that have happened in the past. I mean, uh, and usually uh, the, the good things of your past are what you remember, and that's what you try to occupy your mind with. You also, uh, like I say, set goals or, or think about things you can do in the future, um, trying not to uh, spend too much time on on allowing yourself to think about the situation you're actually in. You try to imagine what what it will be like in the future and try to remember what it was like in the past. I want to take just a minute to uh, remind everybody that uh, we bring this show to you, and uh, I want to thank the folks that have contributed to uh, our veteran shows that we do. Uh, we have... Uh, Pete Mecca that does a veteran story that was yesterday, and uh, he does it every Wednesday. And then I do uh, this show on every Thursday, and we talk to veterans uh, up and down the gambit. And I want to thank the folks that have uh, sent us money to keep us going and keep us talking about veterans. And it's very important to us that, uh, and we do a show on veterans from the from Desert Shield, Desert Storm on Mondays because it's amazing the number of folks that have already forgotten about Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And uh, we want to keep every every veteran in front of everybody because of the importance of what they've done and their love for their country. Uh, when, when you got home, Ron, or, or before you got home, and as you think back over it now, did you have any thoughts about how can one human treat another human like that? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I, you know, to be honest with you, David, I, I may have been a little naive as far as a lot of things going on in the world and even in my of my situation. Uh, and then again, uh, you know, I, I have a, a, a strong background faith background my father was a very very strong uh, uh, Christian and I think even though I, I didn't spend a lot of time 
praying and stuff like that, I think just my background kind of gave me a, a, a easy feeling about things so that uh, I didn't really think about people mistreating other people. Uh, when I got shot down, not once did I ever feel like I would not survive and not come home. Um, I, I, it was just kind of, a, I guess, a inner peace I had about myself and uh, and I, maybe a trust or, like I say, uh, being naive about other people. I don't know. I just didn't feel like other people would, would do things. So I don't know. Maybe that was kind of stupid. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I, I think uh, uh, basically what you just said, and if I'm putting words in your mouth to uh, clarify it, but you never gave up hope. No, never did. And I and I, uh, I consider myself a, a pessimistic optimist. <laughs> I, I, I never once did I think that I wasn't coming home. I just was kind of pessimistic about when it was going to happen. <laughs> and, and when you came home, what was your feeling? Uh, joy. I tell you what, I, I don't know. I, uh, the, the minute we got on that 141 flying out of Hanoi, I, I kind of left all that behind me. I came home, and uh, it was great to see my family. It was great to see my friends. Uh, I just uh, picked up uh, where, where I'd you know left off before I ever went over there. So um, I don't know. I, I like I say, I'm kind of an easygoing person, and I didn't uh, dwell a whole lot on uh, what had happened to me. That's fantastic, and uh, you uh, your attitude is is incredible. And what uh, and does it? Do you feel like it's therapeutical to uh, talk about it? Well, it's it's never bothered me to talk about it. Uh, you know, I've been pretty uh, free with my time as far as when people ask me to talk about it. I uh, and again, this is just kind of human nature. Uh, I think we all remember the good things of our past, and we kind of put aside the things that uh, were unpleasant or uh, or uh, caused us any sort of concern in the past. And so that's that's kind of what I've done, you know. I I just uh, and and when I tell my story, a lot of people say, "Gosh, you know, I, I never could have done that." Well, I think everybody everybody could have done it uh, in their own way. Uh, everybody has a different way of putting up with things like that. Uh, I just uh, was able to uh, again, like I say, easygoing, uh, faithful strong faith and stuff like that and i was just able to uh, kind of put it aside so so when you came back uh you flew for eastern airlines and then uh flew for fedex uh are you still flying uh, general aviation at all or no no once i retired i haven't been back up in an airplane since except a commercial yeah huh. i uh I, I, it's kind of a long story my uh my road after I got home, I, I went, immediately stayed on active duty, went back down to a Randolph Air Force Base in San Antonio where they, uh, they had a uh, homecoming squadron where we would go and the, you would retrain to uh, keep flying, keep your career going in the Air Force. I started that, and a couple months later, a buddy of mine who was flying for Eastern said, hey, Eastern's going to hire any ex-POW that can pass a physical. Uh, so I I got out. I got out and went to Eastern Airlines. Five months later, a fuel crunch of uh, of nineteen seventy four hit, uh, and I 
was late. I was furloughed by Eastern Airlines, so I went back to Kansas City, where my wife and son were living, and uh, went to work for uh, Butler Manufacturing Company, which uh, they uh, build farm buildings, and grain bins, grain dryers, stuff like that. And I worked for them for a year or so, and, and then I went I went back on active duty uh, in uh, January of '76. And went back down to Randolph and finished up uh, my Operation Homecoming. And then I was an instructor pilot in the T-37 out at Mather Air Force Base in Sacramento for about a little over a year. And then I came back down to Randolph to uh, Air Training Command uh, uh, staff position. And then I got out again <laughs> and uh, went back to Eastern in, uh, in 1980 and uh, went back to Eastern and worked with Eastern until... 89 or 88 and uh, then when the the strike occurred at Eastern when the IAM went on strike and the pilots supported that I uh, I went back uh, oh and let's see what they do then that's this is a long story I, I finally uh, uh, when I was back on active duty I was flying in the guard as well and so I, I flew in the guard in Montgomery Alabama and I was uh, Flew there until I went. To, I retired from the guard in '89. Then I went on to FedEx in uh, in 1990 and uh, flew with FedEx for uh, eight. I had 18 good years at FedEx before I retired. Wow! And now your occupation is uh, golf. I believe you. Said. Yeah, my occupation is playing golf once a week, very poorly. Uh, <laughs> I, I I sing in the church choir, although uh, we haven't since March. Although we did have a our first. Uh, uh, social distancing practice uh last sunday for our christmas program coming up uh, that's about it uh, you know the, house, the one point and, that that you missed in in telling what you had done is did you ever get survival school no never did <laughs> no i guess i guess i didn't need it after i you know survived uh, vietnam so that's nope, right never you, went back you could have taught it yeah and, uh, yeah well maybe uh maybe eastern and fedex needed uh t- a survival instructor, you know, I don't know. But <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, it it is a, it's a great story, and for all of us, want to thank you for your service. And you know, how did? Okay, you were married when you were a POW, right? I was. Uh, I got married uh, right after graduation, and just before, actually, a couple months before I went on active duty. Uh, and then my son was born in uh, uh, September of 1965. Of course, I then I went to uh, Southeast Asia in, in October of 66. So he was one year old when I left. He was seven when I came back. Mm. And uh, my wife and I separated, uh, oh, I don't know, within a year and uh, later divorced. And then when I was working for Butler, I remarried uh, and been, been married to uh, uh, Dawn, my present wife now for 43 years and and we have two daughters so i have one son from my first marriage and two daughters from my second marriage and you know do you do you feel like your coming back was uh well we we always try or i always try to mention the families in that they sacrifice sometimes uh the sacrifice of the family is as much as the sacrifice of the officer or the enlisted personnel that uh, has been deployed. And none of us really know until you've been there, done that, uh, 
exactly what the circumstances are. And I, I look at our electronics today. I, I think about my father that served in World War II. And, um, you know, my mother kept his letters and he kept my mother's letters. And it's like, you know, so, so long between hearing anything and yet our electronics today uh, provide such a a blessing to those that are serving to be able to even see their kids or see their mother or father or, or uh, wife or husband or whatever and uh, you know it's uh, it, it's such a strain on the families and even with our electronics it's still a strain on the families when somebody's deployed well it, it is, and, and uh, like I said earlier, in the six years I was over there, I received uh, you know half a dozen packages from home, maybe a half a dozen letters, and I was able to write maybe seven or eight times, and that's it for six years. Uh, I I personally feel like uh, that whole, whole ordeal was was tougher on the families than it was on the POWs. Uh, physically, yeah, we had some very very tough times, but all the time. We did not have to worry about our families. We knew that our families were being taken care of, <clears throat> whereas our families, <clears throat> excuse me, whereas our families for, like I said, for three years, mine didn't even know if I was dead or alive. And then after that, they <clears throat> they still didn't know, you know, what kind of treatment I was having. So they 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 were they could worry every day about my well-being, whereas I didn't have to worry about them. Um, so yeah, I think I think it was tougher on them actually than it was on us you know when you came back and and going back to your small town and all but what did you hit when you hit the first uh u.s air base <laughs> well uh the first one was uh you know we flew to clark and we spent like two or three days at clark uh they gave us medical uh tests and all sorts of things and psychiatric testing and and uh the first the first ones that were there on the 12th of February, uh, the hospital dietitians had been told that these people will have, cannot have any sort of spicy food, and it has to be very bland because they haven't been used to eating the the food that they are they are accustomed to as an Americans. So the staff was looking forward to giving people some very bland meals. Well. Within 24 hours, I think they had eaten them out of all their ice cream, their steaks, their eggs, everything <laughs> they had. And they finally realized that oh, these people can eat anything they want to. So uh, <clears throat> Clark was the first one. Then from Clark, we made a, a brief stop at Hickam in uh, Honolulu, uh, where I actually got to see a couple. Well, one other thing at Clark, this is <laughs> going back to Beloit, Kansas. When, uh, when we flew into Clark, uh, the day after the day that we were released, um, we went to the hospital, and if anybody wanted to visit you in the hospital, they had to go through the hospital commander and get your approval. So one day I got a note from the hospital commander. Uh, w- was a letter from uh, an Air Force sergeant who said that uh, his wife would like to come visit me. And by the way, her name is, and he, he gave me her her maiden name and everything well it happened to be my high school girlfriend <laughs> whose husband was in the air force station at clark so the first person i saw at a u.s air base that i knew was my old girlfriend from high school <laughs> then then when we got to a clark a couple of my old squadron mates from alcatraz england 
were there. This was in the middle of the night when we passed through Clark, and then just for a couple hours, I got to see them. And then we got to uh, uh, Kelly Air Force Base, where we they took us off to 141, uh, that's in San Antonio, and put us on uh, C-9s, and I flew to, to uh, St. Louis, uh, and that's where I actually met my wife, so... Uh, uh, and my family then the next day, my family and, and my son got to see me the next day after we got to uh, uh, St. Louis. That, you know, everything that there are a lot of what we've talked about today and what you've said is, what are the chances? Well... You know, I mean, uh, seeing people that you'd known. I have a, I have a, a common experience with this. Was my, uh, my uh, platoon sergeant in AIT? He and I had graduated from high school together. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, it's such a big army, such a big air force, and the number of stories that you told about running into people. You know, what are the chances? Yeah, it, uh, it. it really a small world i i had uh, another friend who was a, a fraternity brother of mine at the university of kansas that uh, he was on a, a trip up to alaska this was a couple years ago and he got to talking to, to one of the ladies and uh, she was from beloit kansas and of course he was from augusta kansas but uh, they both knew me so it, yeah it's a small world you never know where <laughs> when you're going to run into somebody that you know or your reputation that followed you well yeah yeah, true. But anyway, no, I, I I think your your story is fantastic, and uh, I I'm glad that we've had the opportunity to uh, visit with you. And I hope that uh, if you're in the Atlanta area sometime, that uh, you'll come over to the studios and we can uh, chat some more. Okay. Well, you know, I I, I don't live in Atlanta. I'm way up north at. Uh, uh, Woodstock, that's 30 miles away. <laughs> all, all of, you know. But, uh, well, once in a while we'll let folks from Woodstock in. And, uh, no, it, it would be nice. And uh, I've got, um, I don't know about you, but I've got some uh, some of the guys that are training our young folks now, even in uh, from junior high school on through high school, that uh, the junior uh, ROTC – and uh, he promised that one of these days I still get – I don't know about you, but you put a color guard in front of me, and I, I just – the hairs on my arms still stand up, you know? Well, and, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, <clears throat> my, uh, my daughter and I, up until this year, ran Peachtree in about 23, 24 years in a row. Wow. And I tell you what, standing, standing there before the race starts and having the – Either F-16s or F-18s come screaming down uh, Peachtree right at you, and then plugging that burner in and climbing. Man, I, I get I get tears in my eyes. It just uh, it it and this huge flag they have at the start line at the Peachtree. Yeah, I uh, it it I get the hair on my arm stands up, my heart starts beating, and I get tears in my eyes. It uh, it, it really gets to me. Well, you know, there's. And I, I say this too often, and I get criticized for it, but we've been a part of the largest fraternity and sorority in the world, and that's the U.S. military. Yes. And uh, I think if people don't understand what 
a great and wonderful country we live in. We were born in, or we came and and uh, became citizens. This is the only place in the world that is like it, and the best place in the world. And uh, I have flags all around me in my studio, and uh, respect the flag, and I respect anybody that has raised their right hand and taken the oath and i am uh, my my uh, uh heart goes out to everyone who's ever put on the uniform and, and represent our country whether or not being an actual war battle whatever but if they put on the uniform and and uh, spent time doing their duty to protect our freedoms i really respect them and my heart goes out to them well you know it's uh Everybody has to decide, and uh, hopefully uh, we've got some some uh, questions coming up in the in the near future. And uh, we have to have a strong military. We just have to. I, when my son was uh, stationed in Hawaii, I, I think something that brought tears to my eyes was the fact that here we are, the greatest country in the world, and they had planes on the tarmac that was that weren't flying because they were being cannibalized to keep a few planes flying yeah and it talking about breaking your heart i thought you know that's crazy that's just you know and this was only uh this was about six years ago seven years ago and it was just it was just terrible yep yep i agree david so anyway, I want to thank you again for coming on. And uh, oh, oh, I just about forgot the question that I told you that I always ask, <laughs> and the hardest question that you have to answer: Do you know any veteran that can tell one story? Well, no. They well, they can tell one, but they've all got hundreds of them. <laughs> exactly, and they they. If you're at a, at a, what happens if you're in a at a table at JC or whatever, and uh, there are five or six veterans there? You know, I start one story, then somebody ups me, then somebody ups him, then somebody ups her, and all of a sudden it's back to me, and I've got to tell a better story than they yeah. did. <laughs> that's the way it goes. But that's that's <laughs> the beauty of you know, and and I've also said, and I think I told you this, I haven't interviewed one veteran be it man or woman that and we have a situation right now where one of our hosts was called back up but i haven't interviewed one veteran that if our president called that they wouldn't be breaking their neck to get out the door to say yes yep i agree with that too and uh we have the most wonderful most beautiful military in the world and uh, i i just wish everybody and particularly some of the folks today could appreciate and love our country like our military does and our veterans do and uh, it would be a much better place but that's enough of me uh, t- giving my opinion. So, any- <laughs> anyway, I do want to thank you again for coming on, and uh, will uh, you will you come back? That's the other important question. Well, 
Oh, sure. I can probably come up with some more stories sometime. <laughs> well, start thinking about it, and uh, <laughs> then maybe we can twist your arm in. You know, uh, with all of your experience in different places, do you keep in touch with anybody that uh, graduated from Reese with you? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, one of my best friends, uh, I just talked to him yesterday because he's in the hospital out in Denver. He broke his hip. Hmm. But he, uh, he's, a, he's a retired United pilot. I flew with him uh, uh, at Reese. I, he flew F-4s. I saw him. Uh, he was flying out of uh, 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 Cameron Bay, and mm-hmm. I, I saw him like uh, on my way back from Jungle Survival. Uh, he's the one that got me to fly at Eastern Airlines. Uh, then we flew in the Alabama Guard together. And uh, now we've, we've kept uh, real close. And, and I have a couple other friends from Reese also that I, I keep in touch with, yes. Well, let's make a deal. How about one of these days in the near future, you come in all the way from Woodstock into Sandy <laughs> Springs, and uh, I'll try to have a, a survival expert here just in, in case you need it. But um, you come in, and let's call up a couple of those that uh, trained at Reese. Okay, David, we can probably do that. I think that would be fun, and uh, we'd all sort of have something in common. And uh, like I said, the biggest thing I have in common was watching that B-52 making an emergency landing at Reese that flew oh. <laughs> right over my head. Uh, yeah, I didn't hear about that one. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you told me, but yeah. I didn't know. I didn't hadn't heard about it before. Like I said, that would have been in 1960. About 1967 or 68, something like that. Yeah, well, I, I probably wasn't around. No, That's but, like I get emails every once in a while. Uh, well, actually, on Facebook it says, uh, what were you doing when, do you remember watching the man step on the moon? And I reply, no TV available. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that and I remember you were talking about when you started at Reese was when uh, – President Kennedy was assassinated. Right. And you, do you remember the station KLBK? Uh, I, I do. Uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time to listen to the radio, but, uh, yeah, I remember it. I sure yeah. do. Well, that's that's where I was. So, yeah. anyway, with that being said, we got to let you go. And, okay. Uh, Colonel Matson, uh, Mastin, right? Mastin? Right. Right. Uh, thank you so much for being on, and we're going to look, we're looking for it already to having you back. Take okay, care. David. Thank you. Yes, sir. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.